It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is mostly a protest. Uh, it is not, uh, it is not generally speaking, unruly. That ain't a riot, what we're seeing right now in Minneapolis. They are strictly principled anti-fascists, and they've taken a principled stand to stand against white supremacists and white nationalists wherever they may show up. I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally. It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's... You know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. Any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. Thank goodness for the looters, man. And please show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. I don't care that much about statutes. Respectfully, shouldn't that be done by a commission or the city council, not a mob in the middle of the night throwing it into the harbor? People will do what they do. You're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Do not get it twisted and think that, oh, this is some something that has not never happened before. And then this is so terrible. And where are we and these savages and all of that? This is how this country was started. People get mad and people get sick of it. People are risking covid to explain to this country that we're fed up. Most of the major movements in American history have started at the grassroots level and at some point have turned into direct conflict with American government. So remember your history before you judge your present. Sandy Rios with you. That was uh, the nation's media, at least some of them, and some of our politicians uh, making excuses for the violent outbreaks of Antifa that have taken over this country, various cities, burned, looted, pillaged, and become stronger and stronger by the month and week. Um, we've talked about this before with national security experts. We've talked a bit about Antifa, but no one has done what our next guest has done. He is a journalist who actually infiltrated Antifa. He covered them, the Portland riots. He embedded himself with them, and he's written a new book called Unmask, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. And you'll recognize his name because he's been kind of a he's become a household name for people that are paying attention. And his name is Andy No. And Andy, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Sandy, for having me on. My pleasure. Let me just give a little bit more. Background on you, Andy. You are an American journalist. You are currently the editor-at-large for the Post-Millennial. Uh, you have written now for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, the National Review. You did a series for the New York Post on Portland's fake hate crime. And uh, really, and I think probably you're also very well known for the attack on you by Antifa. And I want to get into that in just a second. But let me ask you, can I ask you a couple of personal questions? Because I'm just interested um, are you, you're not first generation Vietnamese, are you? No, I was actually born in the, the U.S. 
Um, so my parents um, were political refugees to the United States. I know you've done work in, in Southeast Asia before, Sandy, so you're aware of the political history of um, that region. And um, my parents were part of the group people, refugee who uh, fled communist Vietnam in the late 70s and uh, eventually settled uh, in the United States. And that's where, um, and I was, Portland, Oregon is my home. And it's also a place, coincidentally, that's been brought to its knees by Antifa and left-wing extremists. Yes. Andy, I um, I didn't know your folks were with the were part of the boat people. And some people wouldn't know, know what that was. They were just so desperate they had to get in boats, and that's how they escaped Vietnam. Because uh, Vietnam's history is a bloody one, and uh, the turmoil was. And for people that actually believed in democracy and freedom and wanted to work with the Americans, it was a nightmare. Andy, I want to just tell you uh, the reason I ask you that. I had a, a surgery not long ago, a couple of years ago. And my surgeon was Vietnamese. And I just, has, as an offhand question, I asked him a little, you know, I just said, right, what's your background? Where did, how did you get here? And this guy who was so, uh, well, I'll just describe him as professional and uh, buttoned up, just sat down in a chair and started telling me the story of how his mother and he were in that tower when the last helicopter left Vietnam. And they actually got, uh, they, they had to have tickets to get on that plane. And she, he was just a little boy sitting on a suitcase, and his mother had given up hope when an elderly couple were decided that they did not want to leave their home. They were old anyway, and they came over to her and gave their two tickets uh, to his mother and him, and they got on the last helicopter out of Saigon. And that's the reason I ask you that question, because I think that many people of your background and history, have become some of our best patriots. And so, Andy, I think you've already answered, but I'm going to ask you, how, how did your parents' story uh, kind of influence your own view of, this, of the Western, of Western civilization in this country, which now you're fully a part of? Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, you're asking me about this, because most of the times interviewers um, just either don't have the interest or, or the knowledge of the what happened to Vietnamese people after the Vietnam War ended. So for most uh, Americans, their attention turned elsewhere after the U.S. withdrew from its involvement in the Vietnam War. Um, my parents came from the former South Vietnam, and they lived through the reunification process where Vietnam became one communist state. So the, form, the South Vietnamese government had collapsed. And the people like uh, your doctor, who you described, who were able to flee in 1975 by helicopter as the last people, they were extremely lucky because the majority of other people had no way out. The airports were shut down. There was no way to leave. And then so for many years after that, the communist regime wanted to punish people who they viewed as counter-revolutionary, people who were um, against communism. And words they use were uh, exploiters of the Vietnamese people. So uh, my parents, my father was sent to a prison camp uh, because he had worked at a, as a police officer in a small rural town. My mother's family was middle class and they owned property. So she was only a teenager at that time, a child. But the whole family had their property and business 
confiscated and was sent to prison camp as well. So then in 1979, they had an opportunity to flee on unworthy sea boats and uh, made it to a refugee camp in Indonesia where they applied for settlement in the United States. Uh, graciously took in them, and over the years, hundreds of thousands of other refugees from Indochina and settled them. And uh, the, ne- the the those refugees' children, my my generation now, who were uh, uh, raised and brought up in with the privileges uh, afforded and of living in the United States or another Western liberal democracy, we've by and large done very very well. Uh, and have prospered, and that's uh, not by accident. It's because uh, America and in countries that are um, its allies uh, protect freedoms and protect property rights, protect uh, freedom of expression. These are things that a lot of humanity don't have protected today, and so that's my background. And I never really thought that it would eventually kind of intersect with my coverage of Antifa. Um, I started covering Antifa back in 2016 because Portlanders um, took to the streets in probably more than 10,000 people to protest violently against the election results uh, that um, in November 2016 when Trump had won. And so those anti-democratic protests became riots that lasted for days. And that was the first time I had come face to face with these marauding gangs dressed in black and carrying melee weapons and starting fires. I didn't know what they were at the time. I learned very soon that this is Antifa. Uh, I was working as a student journalist at that time when I was a graduate student at Portland State. And I just continued on the beat because the coverage from the local media uh, and then the, the national press and, and the international press is that these were so-called anti-fascists who were mobilizing to protect vulnerable communities, people of color, and other oppressed groups. But what I was seeing was a lot of indiscriminate violence, wanton destruction of property, uh, the bashing of people's faces and heads with batons and concrete and rocks and other really um, sort of medieval type of violence that they were enacting out, and they were being cheered on by many people on the left, and the coverage in the media, uh, as you uh, played in the audio clips at the beginning, uh, and the response from the liberal establishment was to turn a blind eye to it, to excuse it. Absolutely. Yes, it's amazing. And as you're talking, I'm thinking... You know, in the, the like the history of Joseph Stalin, uh, he certainly uh, totally embraced communism. He had been actually in seminary, uh, but he became anti-God and uh, was very open about that. Uh, and he believed in the communist doctrine, but he wasn't making much progress. It wasn't like resonating with people. And someone advised him that the way to actually gain ground was to do violence. And he writes about that. So that's what he started doing. He started acting out violently and having other people act out violently, and that's actually how they were able to, according to him, uh, start getting, gaining ground in Russia. And that's why this is so dangerous, and I know, I know you know that, Andy, because of your past, but let's talk about it. Now, Antifa, 
uh, you trace actually in your book, and I wish I had your book, but I, I, you, I know that you trace the history of Antifa. And we know a little bit about that, but I would love to know what you found. You trace it back to Germany, right? That's right. So the original and first Antifa, capital A, were a paramilitary of the German Communist Party um, in the interwar years. So from its inception, they were doing what the Antifa today were doing in terms of engaging in political violence on the streets of the Weimar Republic, um, engaging in violence and beatings and assassinations of their political opponents. And they were polarizing and trying to destabilize the Weimar Republic, the government. And their opposition wasn't just to Nazis. Uh, they were actually against the governing Social Democrats, so they were against the um, the center-left party at that time and were engaged in a lot of violence against them. So the label who they call fascist was anybody who, who opposed them. And after World War II, when East Germany was created as a communist state, that so-called anti-fascist ideology was then instituted at the state level. And I wish more Americans were aware of this, but what then happened for many decades, East Germany developed this really large buy apparatus to root out wrong things and dissent. And they had hundreds of thousands of people spying on their loved ones, uh, family members, co-workers, to terrify the populace into submission and conformity. And the the Berlin Wall, as we know it, knew it in the West, the, the East Germans, when they built it, they called it the anti-fascist defense barrier. So this whole label of anti-fascism that Antifa today use and have historically used has always been, um, it's, just, it's just branding to make them sound noble and great and something that you want to get on board with. But if you look at the ideology, and I spent now several years observing not just what they do, um, but also reading their literature to see how they radicalize and recruit their members, you'll see that these are anarchist communists who are as extreme as can be, that they are, they're calling for insurrections and they call for terrorist acts, not just against the state, but against other people. Um, they celebrate the murder of people that they view as political opponents. So they have killed before, like last year in Portland when we were yes. convulsed by more than 120 days of nightly violence and riots. They actually ended up, one of their Antifa so-called security, ended up hunting down a Trump supporter in downtown Portland and shooting yes. him dead before oh. fleeing abroad and yes. getting killed themselves by federal authorities. So that's what they do, that's what they call for, and if you look at their literature, they, they're calling for, now they're calling for the abolishment of police, but their larger goal is to abolish the U.S. itself because they view the United States and America's founding ideals, the American philosophy, as fascist. Andy, let me interrupt you just for a second because I want to I wanna go back just for a minute, if I could. Um, I think I told you in an email that I lived in Berlin, Germany. I lived there during the Cold War. And one of the things that I was able to do uh, was go through Checkpoint Charlie, um, 
you may or may not know that it was a, oh, I don't know, it was probably 50 feet, I'm not sure, 100 feet, and it was tank barriers, guns pointed at you. West Berlin at that time was a vibrant city, beautiful, just some some ruins left in the Kurfürstendamm. Uh, but you would, you know, I had to have special permission, my picture on a, uh, um, you were leaving the American sector, and I could not roll down my window, I had all these strict instructions, and would drive into West uh, East Berlin, and suddenly, Andy, there was no color, there were no cars, there was no sound. Uh, you go to a restaurant, it wasn't there weren't people, you go to a restaurant to eat, and People sat in silence. You could all you could hear was their forks clicking on the plate, and you might catch them like doing like a furtive glance at you, and then suddenly looking down at their plate. The tension was so great. I and and I wanted to point, paint that picture because that's what you're talking about, where people were spying on each other. The oppression was so real, you could taste and feel it. And that's why we have to fight what you are describing to us. Now, the anti-fascist movement really doesn't want any kind of leadership, do they? I mean, they're, they're actually already demonstrating against Joe Biden. They say they will not be ruled. They don't believe in... What do they believe in? Complete anarchy? Yeah, so... Um it's it's important to stress out their ideology because sometimes I see them just being labeled as communist. Communism is part of the ideology, but it's specifically anarchy communism. So they view themselves uh, as revolutionaries in a way that's different from the Marxist revolutionary extremists that America has dealt with in the past, like the Weather Underground or Black Liberation Army. The Antifa that they can create a utopia without a government. So their goal is not so much to seize government through like a vanguard. This is like what traditional um, communists tried to do and have done. Rather, they seek more to destabilize and to destroy. And that's where the anarchy aspect of their ideology comes through. So it's, it's the worst of both worlds. It's destruction and wanton violence and chaos on top of that um, totalitarian communism. And Mm. so you can, and it's all grand and theoretical if you read the literature, but then you look at what they've done and you can see they've actually have had some success. Um, Yes. In Seattle last year, they created what they called an autonomous zone. Yes. So it was known popularly as CHAZ. Yes. And so they took yes. we, we have to take a break. I'm so sorry, but hang on just one second. Andy Noah is my guest. Uh, his book is Unmask Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. And when we come back, I want you to finish your sentence, Andy, but I also want to talk to you about how you infiltrated. Uh, we want to talk about, at least briefly, about your being beaten and then your response to that. Also, I want to get into when you have interviews with former members who have left. That sounds fascinating to me. Stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio.
So there was a conservative reporter whom they beat up in Portland recently. Right. Uh, about a year ago, they surrounded a building with ICE officers. And when the landlord attempted to visit the building, they threatened him with needles they said were infected with HIV. They doxed the people that worked there, meaning they had published their public data. And then they would follow them to their children's baseball game. This is about intimidation and about threatening the lives of Americans who don't agree with them. That was uh, Senator Bill Cassidy observing what Antifa had done in Portland, especially with the uh, uh, the immigration headquarters there, ICE headquarters. It was a nightmare, and we watched it on television every night. Andy was right there. He is from Portland. Uh, he is a reporter, editor-at-large for the post-millennial. And, of course, uh, Andy was referenced by uh, Senator Bill Cassidy in that clip because, Andy, you are the reporter that got beaten. I wonder how uh, you – did you first – openly say you were a journalist and just follow them around and watch what they were doing. How did you start that, and how did this beating evolve? Uh, they identified you, so they did not know it initially that you were a reporter. Is that correct? Well, they, so they're very skeptical of and wary of people who are outsiders, anybody who has cameras. So I used to go and I would record video of their public demonstrations, which frequently devolved into violence. And they would ask me, who are you? Who are you with? Uh, at various times, I was writing for freelance publications or I was writing for the student paper. Uh, they didn't like that, but they tolerated me. Um, and then once they actually found out who I was because my work was being read widely, um, then they began to view me as a threat. So a lot of things changed in 2018. So you, you just played a clip from um, Senator Cassidy so that was an autonomous zone that was set up in the summer of 2018 when Antifa has seized um, territory around the Portland Immigration and Customs Enforcement Facility. And the mayor actually um, allowed that to happen and gave them um, the space to do so. And even somebody on city council actually paid with public resources for things like porta parties and other things to maintain that for weeks. And the neighborhood was entirely terrorized. Um, and they created a, a life safety issue. Um, I wrote critically about what was happening, uh, that extremism that was being done in the name of so-called uh, open borders justice. And uh, so that made me target. And then for the next year, uh, eventually the next summer, 2019, uh, they beat me in the course of one of their riots in that video uh, went viral, was partially recorded on camera of the beating. Um, I had a brain hemorrhage. I was hospitalized. And so um, I continue to focus on this beat. Um, that attack, which, by the way, nobody's ever been arrested over, um, just strengthened my resolve to continue uncovering what Antifa does and my warnings to the public, to elected city officials were ignored all that time. And then Antifa carried out their campaign of terror throughout 2020, uh, leading to people getting maimed and injured and one person getting murdered um, and millions and millions of dollars of damage to the econ local economy, which is already struggling because of COVID. Andy, you actually, you know, I think it's pretty, it's amazing to me 
that that did not intimidate you, and it obviously did not. In fact, you then went undercover, is that is that right, into Antifa? Yeah, I had to go to different... Uh, I had to become creative in how I was covering them, because after the beating in 2019, they called for my murder, they put out um, my family's address, they've shown up to my home, and they've been able to threaten uh, with impunity. Uh, I report all that to police, nothing ever happens, I identify some of the people, nothing ever happens. So um, there was no way I could ever go back in and just record in the public as a member of the press anymore. And it's, it's a terrible precedent that's been set in that members of uh, either independent journalists or any type of journalist can be intimidated through violence to stop recording things that are happening in public. So that's what Antifa do. So uh, part of the diversifying of my tactic, tactics involved being undercover. Um, I spent time in the autonomous zone in Seattle, uh, otherwise known as CHAZ, during last year when Antifa and BLM had took over six blocks of territory near downtown. And they set up a hard border. So there were checkpoints. You talked about checkpoints earlier between uh, East and West Berlin. It was something like that, similar to that. They actually had their own militia guarding the, these checkpoints, um, and they had guns on them to intimidate you. And this was in a really densely air- populated area, so it was essentially a hostage situation that they created. And this was allowed to go on for more than three weeks by Seattle's mayor and the governor of Washington State because it was done in the name of Black Lives Matter and racial justice. Um, They forced the police station, police officers in the station there to evacuate. So this was really, truly a lawless zone of terror. And I spent time there because I wanted to see what, what would it look like if Antifa actually got the opportunity to state build in the U.S. And what happened is it evolved until mass property destruction, uh, shootings, attempted rape, and murders, eventually, including of a 16-year-old boy. So this is what their ideology leads to. It's not just theoretical. You can look and see what happens. And it's not just contained to Seattle in the summer, because later on, uh, in December of 2020, Antifa created another autonomous zone, this time in Portland, my hometown in a residential area of the city, and they created a hard border, and they set up booby traps on the street, terrorized the community, families had to flee, they couldn't go to their own homes anymore. And this was allowed to go on because, again, it was done in this name of anti-fascism. Andy, uh, when you, you know, you can't, I guess, I'm guessing, maybe I've seen too many movies, I've never gone undercover, but I'm guessing, in some ways when you do that, you have to sort of develop relationships, not necessarily close, but associations. And I'm assuming you did that. And did you see among uh, the people any kind of softness? Did you see people who were maybe all in and then others that maybe you thought weren't quite so all in? Or were they just all hardcore anti-fascists, to use to coin a phrase loosely? It really spans the spectrum, Sandy. And um, they let down their guard at times because they thought I, I was one of them, or at least a sympathizer or a supporter. And I got to see a different side of them in that 
um, the camaraderie that they show to their members is is really strong in that they will pr- provide for one another, care for one another. Um, and it made me understand why vulnerable people were being drawn to this essentially violent political cult in that they provide like meaning, purpose, and community to their members. And they call for them to essentially reject their families, to distrust people around them because anybody could be an informant. And their actions and how they relate to one another is very much similar, I think, to how, like, what jihadists do. You know, like, they focus, in addition to the terrorizing of outsiders, they do things like so-called charity, so to try to win over the hearts and minds of people on the left. And I think they were able to successfully do that to a degree because of all this misinformation and disinformation that was being put out by the press which lionized the actions of these domestic terrorists and didn't accurately report on the extremism, you know? And then you can look at the literature that they were giving out to each other, giving out to kids and youth, and some of this stuff is calling for using human shields when needed, um, how to take over a building and to barricade it successfully to prevent police from coming in, how to create homemade weapons. And the type of stuff that they would doing during the riots importantly when I was on the ground is it was really like a war zone. It you cannot even compare the actions of the sixth of January at the Capitol Hill to what was happening in Portland. The people in Portland night after night were coming with things like guns, knives, explosives, and their goal, state goal is to burn down the federal courthouse. And more than a hundred federal officers had Uh, received really serious injuries. And the response from the press was to call um, the DHS officers, um, Gestapo, secret police, Trump's occupying army, the politicians from from the mayor to the senators to the governor in the state of Oregon were repeating the same inflammatory language that was inciting violence and bringing more people to come in. And so... You know, it's not just contained to Portland and Seattle, too. I want, like, when people read the book to understand that the tactics that are developed, the apparatus that becomes refined in the Pacific Northwest, these become blueprints for them to try to replicate similar activities in other parts of the country. I want to ask you, this is not in your book, because this has happened since your book, and that is January the 6th. And I actually, you know, I've read a lot, Andy, and talked a lot about this on the air, but uh, you really are the expert on this. Um, I saw traces of Antifa there, and I, John Sullivan was certainly there. John has a terrible, you know, record, and he's on tape, you know, uh, asking for a revolution. He's a violent guy. And, um, but we have heard precious little about that. Do you know anything about their involvement on January 6th? Or would you venture a speculation, or did you see patterns? Like one thing that I, I know, they were in the, inside the Capitol, there was a chant, you know, because we played it, our house, not, uh, whose house, our house, whose house, our house, which is similar to chants that I've heard from Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Those are the kinds of patterns that I looked for. I wonder what you thought about what happened on January 6th and a possible involvement within, uh, of Antifa. I've been asked this a lot, and I, I was reading all the viral rumors that are being 
shared on on social media on the 6th of January as all these videos were coming out. And uh, I, um, it was very important for me to refrain from speculation um, just because a lot of the people hadn't been identified yet, and I knew in due course they would be. So most of the people have been identified who were accused of being involved or there uh, on the 6th of January. Many of them are, have been federally charged already. And we've had an opportunity to look into the backgrounds. I don't think that there is substantial evidence at this point um, to uh, support the claim that Antifa was involved in leading or carrying out false flag um, violence that day. Uh, you mentioned John O'Sullivan. I recognized him early on in the video footage, and it was very interesting to see him being interviewed on CNN. And we found out this week that CNN and NBC News had each paid him $35,000 for exactly. the video of um, the, the woman being shot dead. And this is somebody who, as you said, um, has a history on record of saying violent extremist things for, for far-left causes. So... Um, I mean, it remains to be seen. I know the investigations are still being carried out. Trials will be happening. So um, I, uh, I won't comment more beyond that. Okay, no, no, I, so I respect yeah. that because I know that when you do speak, you will, you will know uh, and will listen. Uh, so I, I want to ask you a few questions. Before we run out of time, there are some things for sure. I'm really curious about the interviews you did with victims and former followers. I, we can't cover all of them, but give us an example, like a former follower. Are there many former followers of Antifa? So people who end up leaving the movement, um, they are intimidated into violence. So there's sort of two, the two things that Antifa view as sort of the greatest things. One is cooperating with law enforcement. Two is uh, betraying their comrades or former comrades in some way. So people who end up maybe um, having a change of heart because they're seeing the brutality of what Antifa do, they end up leaving quietly because if they come out and say what their true experiences were like, these Antifa will make sure that these people will suffer the consequences such as threats and violence. Um, one of the, I think, most important interviews that I did in my book was not of an ex Antifa member, but of somebody who was married to an Antifa member. So um, a woman in, in Oregon, her ex-husband had carried out a politically motivated uh, attempted shooting of, of school resource officers in Eugene, Oregon at the beginning of 2019. And he ended up getting killed in the process of that attack. Now, his ex-wife uh, had separated with him for a few years before then. But she was able, because they still had children, because they had children together, she remained in contact. And she provided me this insight into this gradual transformation that uh, happened to her ex-husband. This sort of, comp- he was essentially remade into a different person once he became involved with the Antifa in Eugene, Oregon. He adopted different pronouns suddenly. He was um, uh, becoming more and more extreme. He... Um, was introducing uh, their children to things like uh, firearms, weapons training, uh, distrust of police, hatred of the country. So um, 
I quote her extensively in the book, and you'll see how Antifa frequently the people who are drawn in and brought in to do the level like the the thuggery act, the acts of thuggery and acts of violence are people who are disturbed or vulnerable in some way. And Antifa know this, and they take advantage of that. I mentioned the community aspect earlier, and so. You really have to see this as sort of a, in addition to being a, a, a security threat to the Republic, it's also a really wicked and cruel ideology and movement that uses some of the most vulnerable people of society as foot soldiers to carry out this revolutionary, insurrectionary agenda. Uh, Andy, we've ta- um, of course I've speculated, and I just think it's true, it's probably it's a given that uh, American children have been raised in a, a increasingly radical school environment. Whether it's it's gone into grade school and high school now, didn't used to be. Certainly, is in colleges and universities. So we can easily say, well, that's laid the groundwork. But do you see some other? You kind of alluded to this. Do you see some other reason why uh, America's youth are so drawn to this? Yes, um, I write about this in the book. I think the. The reason that Antifa has been able to recruit a lot of people uh, in the past four and a half years is because there's been groundwork that's been laid to their advantage. And that groundwork I'm referring to just the transformation of really important institutions in America, like education, academe, and entertainment and culture. All of these have moved leftward, but leftward in the direction towards critical race theory, which teaches people grievance ideology, hatred of their country, um, and teaches them that political violence is okay. And so what was formally seen as unacceptable, such as carrying out acts of violence against people you disagree with, is now sort of widely embraced by the mainstream left. You played the clips at the beginning of our interview of all these mainstream politicians and media commentators and journalists who were excusing domestic terrorist acts last year because it was for a cause that they support. I think, um, and that is a message that America's children and youth are being told in schools and at universities. So I don't think the future is particularly optimistic. To be honest. Well, I don't disagree with you, Andy. I think, uh, I think honestly, it's going to take a very strong, um, strong belief in something else to counter this. I believe it's uh, Christianity, because I'm a Christian. I think that's going to be that's the only thing that's going to stand in their way. But um, I'm not sure how successful, given the, the state of the Western Church right now. But Andy, that's been fascinating. And uh, let me just tell you again, the book is called. Unmask inside Antifa's radical plan to destroy democracy. We just barely scratched the surface on what Andy has laid out in his book. So I highly recommend that you get this book and read it. I'm certainly going to do that myself. Andy, it's really a pleasure to meet you, and I hope that we can talk again in the future as your reporting continues, okay? Thank you, Sandy. Okay, thank you so much. Sandy Rios, in the morning on AFR Talk.
Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Dealing with imaginary things like Antifa. I mean, I, I can't believe the chairman of the Judiciary Committee would utter such a statement on the House floor, but he said imaginary things like Antifa. They're not imaginary. They're real. And if you don't believe me, go talk to Portland, the, the, the journalist, Andy No, and uh, the, the journalist in Portland who was attacked by Antifa, who the president of the United States designated as a terrorist organization and to have the chair of the Judiciary Committee on the House floor say this sentence, imaginary things like, or these words, not a sentence, imaginary things like Antifa, they are far from imaginary. And there are people in every major city in this country who know that, and yet the chair of the Judiciary Committee just made that statement. That is scary. So when we say we weren't consulted and they didn't talk about it, when you have that kind of attitude, we had good, thoughtful amendments in that committee. No, no, no. We can't deal with it because their attitude is Antifa's imaginary. It is far from that. And go ask that journalist in Portland just a year ago was beaten up by these individuals. That is ridiculous. Of course, that's Jim Jordan, who's getting a little angry. Good for him. God bless him for his anger. And before that is Gerald Nadler, who, as uh, Jim Jordan said, was at that time the chairman of the judiciary. This is before the election. Uh, there's nothing There's nothing that's imaginary. And then, of course, we had Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, giving his report before Congress saying, Antifa, you know, they're not an organization. They're an idea. They're an idea. We can't go after them because they're just an idea. Well, you just heard Andy describe what their ideas are. And as a matter of fact, there are a lot of things we did not get to in his interview because he has communications um, sent to the Rose City Antifa members in Portland, Oregon, which give the timeline of Antifa from its origins. Uh, he also names Antifa members for the very first time. And another thing he does is he has this curriculum, the Antifa curriculum, uh, that he prints in his book. And so... Uh, I do think that you'll want to follow up with that. But back to the political scene. I just played you at the top of the show that montage of not only politicians but also journalists uh, saying that uh, it's nothing, it's not really violence, and they're upset about something, and so it's different, and not all violence is the same. Some violence is good violence. and But January 6th, of course, that was horrible violence, much worse than the riots in Portland in Seattle, the murder in Seattle, that's not so important. In fact, as far as I know, there's been no justice for those poor people. In Seattle and Portland, uh, the officers that were killed, assassinated really at some of those federal buildings, uh, all the property damage, the businesses, uh, it, there's no, no uh, response to that. There's been no government concerted effort to stop any of that, and, and why not? I mean, why would there be? With Chris Ray, the head of the FBI, uh, telling the Congress that, you know, no, FBI, uh, uh, Antifa is just an, an idea. It's not, it's not an organization. We can't go after them. It's just an idea. Uh, well, that idea has been killing people, targeting them for assassination now for well over a year. And uh, they have disrupted normal life. They have intimidated America's citizens. They've destroyed pop property, and they're do still doing the same thing. They're doing it in, in, doing it in the streets of Washington, D.C. Uh, they are... You know, that Washington, D.C. is now an armed camp. Uh, and if the Democrats have their way, it will remain an armed camp at least until next fall. That's what they're saying. I think it'll, they'll keep it that way. They love that. 
It's uh, kind of like the um, Chad or whatever it was in Portland or in Seattle. That um, that area that's marked off, it's only for them, where you can only get in if you have a pass. And, of course, the Democrats are trying to intimidate and make life miserable for the few conservatives that remain in the House and the fewer that remain in the Senate uh, by um, accusing them of being terrorists, accusing uh, Josh Hawley, the senator, and Ted Cruz of being, you know, um, instigating, being affiliated with, uh, associated with the so-called right, those horrible people that did what they did in the Capitol on January the 6th. Uh, but the people that did all those truly despicable things, property damage, killing people in Portland and Seattle, Minneapolis, wherever else they have raised their ugly black heads, and that's not a racist comment, they, they're nothing. There's been no retribution whatsoever. And by the way, this is not a race thing. I, I should say that because I know people, I know how people listen. It seems like, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter have, you know, a lot of the leaders of Black Lives Matter are white people, white leftists. And uh, certainly Antifa is populated by white leftists, but there are black Antifa too. So it's really, you know, I, as I've said before, wickedness is not assigned to a color. Uh, people of every race, there's wickedness. Back, wickedness dwells in all of our hearts. And that reminds me then of one of the last things I said to Andy there, and that is the truth that the only thing that's going to stop this is the people of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Because I don't think that you would deny that this is a spiritual battle. That wickedness comes from somewhere, even if Antiva doesn't realize where their strength and power and determination and destructive a love of destruction and, and, and murder and disarray comes from. We know where it comes, comes from. It comes from the prince of this world. Right now they're having their way, but the opponent of the prince of this world is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And uh, he dwells within many of you and certainly within me. And uh, that is the thing that's going to stop this. I'm just telling you, I don't know how it's going to manifest itself, but God will prevail. And uh, I wouldn't want to be in their position. I would not want to be in their position. I really enjoyed talking to Andy Noel. I'm glad you listened. And uh, you can listen again in the podcast if you'd like to share this with other people. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.